This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am Stephen Adler, uh, provost of Earl Warren College, a professor in the Department of Theater and Dance and director of the Law and Society program here at UCSD. Uh, on behalf of uh, Warren College, Law and Society, uh, the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies, and California Western School of Law, I welcome you all to the DeWitt Higgs Memorial Lecture. The Higgs Lecture was created as a forum for distinguished speakers to lecture on legal topics of national significance. The lecture's namesake, DeWitt Higgs, who passed away in 1994, founded the San Diego law firm Higgs, Fletcher, and Mack. DeWitt Higgs's distinguished career was highlighted by outstanding service as a regent of the University of California. The Higgs Lecture is hosted annually to recognize his contributions to the law, to education, and to academic freedom. I would particularly like to thank DeWitt Higgs' son, Craig Higgs, Esquire, of the law firm Higgs, Fletcher & Mack, who has been a constant supporter of the program. The faculty of the Interdisciplinary Law and Society program here at UC San Diego selects the topic and the speaker each year with an eye toward offering stimulating discourse for our communities. We believe that tonight's lecture by Professor Gabriel Chin of the University of California Davis School of Law will accomplish the goals of the Higgs Lecture in exemplary fashion. It's now my pleasure to introduce Dean Niels Schaumann of California Western School of Law, who will in turn introduce Professor Chin. Professor Schaumann. Thank you, Provost Adler. Uh, I'm Neil Sherman. I'm the new dean at California Western School of Law. I'm delighted to be here. This is my first time at the uh, jointly sponsored uh, DeWitt Higgs Memorial Lecture. And it's, uh, it, I can see that it's off to a, a fantastic start. And tonight's speaker, I think you'll find to be a real treat. Um, Gabriel Chin is a teacher and scholar of immigration law, criminal procedure, and race and the law. His scholarship has appeared in the Penn, UCLA, Cornell, and Harvard Civil Rights, Civil Liberties Law Reviews, and the Duke and Georgetown Law Journals, among others. If that's not enough endorsement for you, the U.S. Supreme Court has cited his work on collateral consequences of criminal conviction in 2013, calling his Cornell Law Review article the principal scholarly article on the subject. And in 2010's Padilla versus Kentucky, uh, the court agreed with his contention that the Sixth Amendment required defense counsel to advise clients 
of possible deportation consequences of guilty pleas. Professor Chin, uh, well, Professor Chin's efforts with students to repeal Jim Crow laws that are still on the books includes a successful 2003 petition to the Ohio legislature to ratify the 14th Amendment, which I find remarkable, and congratulations on that, uh, 136 years after the state disapproved it during the ratification process. Welcome to the 21st century. He and his students also achieved the repeal of anti-Asian alien land laws, which are on the books in Kansas, New Mexico, and Wyoming. For this work, A Magazine named him one of the 25 most notable Asians in America. That's not A Magazine. That is a magazine called A. In connection with classes with a practical component, very near and dear to the Cal Western mission, he has tried felony cases and argued criminal appeals with his students. Uh, his background includes a uh, BA from Wesleyan, a JD from Michigan, and an LLM from Yale. He clerked for U.S. District Judge Richard P. Match in Denver and practiced with the Skadden Arps firm and the Legal Aid Society of New York. He has taught at the Arizona, Cincinnati, uh, New York University, and Western New England law schools before joining the UC Davis faculty. His professional activities include service as reporter on the Uniform Collateral Consequences of Conviction Act, approved in 2009 by the Uniform Laws Conviction, uh, Commission, worked on the third edition of the ABA Standards for Criminal Justice, Collateral Sanctions and Discretionary Disqualifications of Convicted Persons, and is a member of the American Law Institute. Please help me welcome Professor Gabriel Chin. Thank you, Provost Adler and Dean Schaumann. Uh, I'm very pleased to have been invited to uh, participate in this lecture today. I'm grateful to the California Western School of Law and uh, UC San Diego. In 2010, Arizona and other states began a legal confrontation with the United States uh, about which levels of government had the right to enact immigration laws. Arizona's law, SB 1070, was designed to drive undocumented non-citizens out of the state. The United States sued, claiming that immigration was an area of exclusive federal responsibility. Arizona and the other states claimed that they had concurrent authority to legislate in the area. SB 1070 was suspended in important part by the U.S. District Court and by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And in 2012, just two years after it had been enacted, which is lightning fast in legal terms, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, largely held that SB 1070 was invalid. I want to talk about where the fight from these, for these laws came from, uh, what SB 1070 and similar laws in other states did, I want to talk about why state regulation of immigration is controversial and why the United States sued to stop it. Uh, and, and I want to then say something about the historical context and the road ahead. First, where did SB 1070 come from? SB 1070 was passed, as I said, in April 2010. In one sense, SB 1070 came from a policy shop in Washington, D.C., called the Immigration Law Reform Institute. 
There are two lawyers there, uh, Michael Hethman and Chris Kobach. Chris Kobach was a Justice uh, Department official under Attorney General Ashcroft, then a law professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Now he is the Secretary of State of Kansas. He was elected to that position in 2010. He also served as an advisor to Mitt Romney uh, in his recent presidential campaign. Uh, Mr. Hethman and Secretary Kobach have had a hand in just about every anti-immigrant policy and legislation across the United States for the past seven or eight years. Uh, uh, Professor Kobach drafted a, an ordinance uh, in Farmers Branch, Texas, that basically makes it illegal for undocumented people in that town to uh, rent an apartment. Uh, Professor Kobach was responsible in California for the litigation that uh, sued to challenge the right of undocumented non-citizens to get in-state tuition. That lawsuit was uh, unsuccessful. It's sometimes said that academic fights are so vicious because the stakes are so small. It's sometimes said that the research uh, that ivory tower professors do is irrelevant to the real world. And Professor Kobach, Secretary Kobach, is a, a strong counterexample to that. His research, his work, led to uh, uh, ordinances, statutes, laws on the books in dozens and dozens of cities and states around the country. Many of them are in effect today. Professor Kobach's work had two major insights. The first was this. Professor Kobach identified what he saw as a middle ground uh, between what he called two extremes of the policy choices available to deal with the, with the problem of undocumented immigration in the United States. On one extreme, he said, was amnesty, legalization, uh, what he called rewarding lawbreakers for the crimes that they had committed. And he said that that was an unacceptable extreme. And on the other uh, extreme, uh, he was... Uh, uh, having 12 million individual deportation hearings for the undocumented population in the United States. And he said, he recognized, uh, he argued that both of these were, were either politically impossible or undesirable, but he said that that didn't mean that there was nothing that we could do. There was an alternative. And the alternative was what he called self-deportation, attrition through enforcement. And what he meant by that was, making life difficult enough in the United States or in any state that adopted his ideas that the undocumented population in that state would choose to leave, would go either back to whatever country it is they came from or to some other state in the United States. And he was, I think, right about this, that... Uh, attrition through enforcement had the possibility of working. Uh, it might have been in inhumane, it might have been cruel in light of the fact that many of the people that he was talking about, the undocumented population, had U.S. citizen children, U.S. citizen spouses, but I think he was right that it had a possibility of working. The other thing that he came up with was something called the mirror image theory. As I will discuss, there is a tradition in United States law that the federal government is the level of government that has responsibility for immigration policy. But his idea uh, 
was that uh, if you if you uh, cobble together the various uh, ways in which the federal government has invited the states to participate in immigration law enforcement. And they have done some things. Uh, 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 in particular, there's a federal statute that allows state and local law enforcement authorities to cooperate in the investigation, apprehension, detention, and removal of undocumented citizens, uh, undocumented non-citizens, at the direction of the Attorney General. So the states have the right, if they choose to, to cooperate with the Attorney General in immigration enforcement. It's also the case that for many years, state and local law enforcement authorities have had the right to make arrests for federal crimes. Uh, And that includes immigration crimes. And so he put these various things together, and he made the argument that notwithstanding the tradition of federal responsibility for immigration policy, Congress, by authorizing these things, had invited the states to participate in immigration enforcement, uh, including by enacting and enforcing their own laws. So long as the state laws were mirror images of federal laws, he said, they were permissible. What's wrong, he asked, with states helping the federal government enforce their own laws. What could be wrong with that? And uh, people like Sarah Palin, George Will, and many others uh, could see nothing wrong with the states helping the government enforce their own laws. So SB SB 1070 came in large part, was derived from in large part, uh, uh, from Chris Kobach and his ideas Uh, about an effective policy and a constitutional policy for states to get involved in immigration enforcement. Another place that you could say SB 1070 came from uh, was Arizona. Arizona had a fraught history of racial issues since 1861, uh, at least when Arizona, which was a slave territory, seceded from the Union and joined the Confederate States of America. Arizona made headlines again in the early 1990s, as some of you may recall, when it became the last state in the Union to consider adopting the federal Martin Luther King Day holiday, and the first couple of times that it considered it, it rejected it, and ultimately, though, uh, it, it got on board. Arizona also has a long history of anti-immigrant policies. In 1915 and 1971, the Supreme Court of the United States invalidated uh, various policies that Arizona had enacted designed to make life difficult for uh, for aliens. SB 1070, though, was really part of a more recent wave of uh, of Arizona's anti-immigrant legislation. Starting in about 2004, uh, there were one, two, three pieces of legislation a year that were designed to carry out Professor Kovacs' ideas of attrition through enforcement and of encouraging self-deportation. In 2007, an important one, the legislature enacted the Legal Arizona Workers Act, uh, which made it uh, uh, difficult for undocumented people to work in the state. It threatened to revoke the business licenses of any business that hired an undocumented worker, and it required all employers in the state 
to use the federal e-verify database before, it hired, uh, before hiring an employee. The Legal Arizona Workers Act was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2011. But the group of laws that uh, started coming on the books in 2004, none of them became a national cause celeb the way SB 1070 did. SB 1070 was the breakthrough. There are are SB 1070 type laws on the books in Alabama, Georgia, Indiana, South Carolina, and Utah. Uh, Each of those states have their own stories and histories, but I think it's fair to say that the SB 1070 type law, the anti-immigrant type of law that uh, that, uh, uh, became so popular in the last couple of years, has had the most enthusiastic reception in places that have a history of nativist and anti-immigrant and, uh, and racist policies. So what did SB 1070 do? Uh, how did it, how, how was it designed? The big point is section one, which explains what Arizona is trying to accomplish. Section one says, The legislature declares that the intent of this act is to make attrition through enforcement the public policy of all state and local government agencies in Arizona. The provisions of this act are intended to work together to discourage and deter the unlawful entry and presence of aliens and economic activity by persons unlawfully present in the United States. As a statute, as a piece of legal writing, the most prominent characteristic of SB 1070 is that it is a mess. It is vague, sloppy, inconsistent, imprecise. It uses terms that aren't used in any other state or federal law uh, on the books. It has conflicting tests. It has loose ends, references to statutes that clearly don't apply. It's a wreck. I believe that SB 1070 was drafted this way on purpose. SB 1070 was not primarily designed to provide the basis for arrests and prosecutions, for getting convictions and putting people in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's famous tent jails. There are 6.6 million people in Arizona, more or less. In 2010, there were something like 450,000 undocumented people. This was not a problem that could be solved by actually making arrests and prosecuting cases. It's inconceivable that any significant number of the undocumented people could have been dealt with by the criminal justice system. But the law was designed to get people to self-deport. Therefore, vagueness and uncertainty about what it meant was a virtue. Reading the law, nobody could be sure about how to comply with it. Nobody was sure about what conduct it punished, how it worked. If a person was in Arizona without legal status, under some readings of the law, plausible readings of the law, they're subject to stop and arrest at any time. If you were in Arizona and you're lawfully present, but you dealt with someone who was undocumented, under some plausible readings of the law, almost any dealings that you had with an undocumented person or someone who might be undocumented could be a criminal offense. As a law whose primary goal was to generate anxiety 
and uncertainty, it was an enormous success. So let me talk about the nuts and bolts. The first big feature of SB 1070 was a set of requirements about investigation uh, and reporting. If a person was stopped, detained, arrested, or convicted of a crime in Arizona, and there was reasonable suspicion that they were undocumented, then the police had to investigate their status. The point of this was to get more, to increase the number of undocumented people who were in the deportation system. More reports from Arizona law enforcement to federal law enforcement that would lead to removal. Uh, uh, and, and thereby strike fear into the undocumented community that if they were stopped or arrested for even a trivial offense, they might be gone. Although the lawsuit of the United States challenged these provisions, the Supreme Court refused to strike them down, and they're in effect today. The second big feature of the law was what I call an anti-boss provision. State agencies and officers, leaders in state agencies, cannot restrict their uh, line employees from enforcing immigration law. Uh, the statute says that an agency or official can't prohibit a line employee from uh, uh, enforcing immigration law to less than the full extent permitted by federal law. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think that it means that if a police chief wants to assign a police officer to direct traffic at an intersection, but that officer would prefer to do immigration investigations, that they can't be stopped from doing that. Uh, uh, and this is not just an empty desire. The statute goes on to say that if the officer or agency violates the, the command and enforces federal immigration law to, an, uh, to less than the full extent, then any lawful resident of Arizona may sue that officer or agency uh, and if they prove it, collect a statutory uh, uh, penalty and attorney's fees. Why have a penalty provision? Why uh, sanction a, an officer or agency in this situation? Well, the legislature recognized that local law enforcement agencies might well prefer to investigate rapes, robberies, and murders than to look for uh, alfalfa pickers in the state. And uh, what this provision does is it says that if they fail to prioritize immigration enforcement, then they can be sued. Uh, they can't be sued for failing to investigate terrorism or mass shootings or serial rapes. That is within their discretion as a law enforcement agency to decide whether to do or not. But if they fail to investigate immigration, for that and only that, uh, they may be in legal trouble under SB 1070. This provision was not challenged by the United States when it sued Arizona, and it's in effect today. The third thing that SB 1070 did is it created four new Arizona crimes. It's a crime to be present in Arizona if you're an unauthorized non-citizen and if you, if you don't possess an immigration document or register as required by federal law. This is more or less a copy of federal law, uh, the Supreme Court held that provision unconstitutional in Arizona versus United States. 
Another provision makes it a crime to work in Arizona if you're undocumented. There is no federal, no federal criminal prohibition for working uh, in the United States if you're undocumented. So this was an Arizona innovation. The Supreme Court held that provision unconstitutional. SB 1070 made it a crime to solicit or accept work while you're blocking traffic. This was aimed at the day labor phenomenon, uh, to make soliciting work as a day laborer a uh, criminal offense. Uh, however, it applies to everyone regardless of status. U.S. citizen, lawful permanent resident, doesn't matter. Uh, uh, it makes it a crime. This is not a federal crime. It was not challenged by the United States in the Arizona versus United States litigation. However, it uh, was challenged by private parties. U.S. District Court held it unconstitutional a year ago. That decision was, was affirmed yesterday by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. So that's not in effect at this time. SB 1070 also made it a crime to transport, conceal, move, harbor, or shield an undocumented person in furtherance of their unlawful presence in the United States. There's an exception for child protective services workers in performance of their official duties and for ambulance workers working for a licensed ambulance company. The fact that it doesn't have an exception for, say, firefighters taking someone to the hospital indicates that the statute is quite, quite broad. It, it, uh, transporting, concealing, harboring, or shielding uh, 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 are prohibited under federal law, but the Arizona law is different in a number of respects. Some version of this prohibition is already on the books in, in uh, seven or more other states in addition to Arizona. This provision also did not make it to the US Supreme Court in the Arizona versus United States litigation, but it was struck down by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, by US district courts in Arizona and South Carolina, and upheld by state courts in Arizona and Colorado. There's a petition for certiorari pending in the US Supreme Court now. And so there's a decent chance that the US Supreme Court is going to review this. The last major thing that SB 1070 did is that it authorized the arrest of non-citizens who were deportable based on prior convictions. And the Supreme Court struck this down as well. Some of the myths and legends about SB 1070. SB 1070 does not allow the police to make stops of anyone with no evidence just to ask for people's papers. It is true that police can ask anyone any question at any time, so long as they don't give you the impression that you have to cooperate with them. They can ask you if you have guns or drugs or if you've robbed or killed anyone. Uh, and if you choose to voluntarily answer, then that evidence can be used against you. The Supreme Court held that immigration status was on the list of things that the police could ask you about freely in a 2005 case called Mueller versus Mena, which was before SB 1070 was a twinkle in Chris Kobach's eye. 
If it were true that SB 1070 authorized the police to stop anyone at any time just to check ID without individualized suspicion, it would be unconstitutional for that reason. But it doesn't. It's also not true that SB 1070 was novel in that it involved Arizona state and local law enforcement officers in immigration enforcement for the first time. Under both Ninth Circuit and Arizona precedent, Arizona police could already make arrests for federal immigration crimes, not simply for civil deportation, but for crimes under federal law, such as re-entry after deportation, which is a felony. The important part about this is that merely being in the United States without authorization is not a crime, so local police couldn't arrest someone merely because they were undocumented, but they did have involvement in immigration enforcement before. Under so-called 287G agreements, state and local police could be trained and empowered to enforce federal immigration law, civil and criminal, under under the supervision and control of the United States. It's also the case that even before SB 1070, if Arizona police stopped someone, say, for a traffic offense and had any sort of suspicion that they were undocumented, they would ask them if they were undocumented. And if they were undocumented, they would hold that person for 20 minutes or half an hour uh, if the Border Patrol or Immigration and Customs Enforcement could pick the person up uh, uh, within that period of time. So that wasn't new. What was new was that before SB 1070, Arizona police had to turn defendants over to federal authorities. They couldn't prosecute on their own. And federal authorities had very little interest in prosecuting most of these people who were uh, uh, agricultural workers who presented no serious problems. So the innovation of SB 1070 was that after SB 1070, Arizona could threaten to put these people in prison on their own authority without requiring the cooperation of the federal government. And this was a major new threat. Racial profiling. SB 1070 is a remarkable statute in that it explicitly authorizes and maybe requires racial profiling. SB 1070 says that that in enforcing the provisions of the statute, state and local police cannot consider race, color, or national origin except as authorized by the United States or Arizona Constitution. It doesn't just say they can't consider those things. It says they can't consider them except as they're authorized by the Constitution. As it turns out, both the Arizona and U.S. Supreme Courts have held that their constitutions permit consideration of race in immigration enforcement. There's a 1975 case called United States versus Brignoni Ponce, where a unanimous Supreme Court said, the likelihood that any given person of Mexican ancestry is an alien is high enough to make Mexican appearance a relevant factor. So the police are allowed to say, I think you look Mexican, and therefore that is a factor uh, that leads me to think that you are undocumented. Arizona Supreme Court said the same thing. SB 1070 may require racial profiling, not just permit it, because as I told you, if 
an officer or agency fails to enforce immigration law to the fullest extent, they're subject to lawsuit. And if an agency were to say, don't consider race in enforcing SB 1070, they're not enforcing federal immigration law to the fullest extent, arguably. So, of course, SB 1070 facilitates discrimination. Of course, SB 1070 is about Mexicans. But don't blame Arizona for that. For that, we have to blame the U.S. Supreme Court and the Arizona Supreme Court because they are the ones who said that racial profiling in this particular context was permissible. In sum, what the state of Arizona wanted was a way to threaten, arrest, and charge in their own courts each and every undocumented person in the state. What Professor Kobach wanted was a way to test a number of different anti-immigration provisions all at once. Throw it up against the wall and see what sticks, and then replicate what's permitted in other jurisdictions across the country. So that's SB 1070 uh, and its copycats. What's, what's the problem with SB 1070? Well, a number of, of groups, uh, uh, the, uh, the ACLU, Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund, the United States itself, said that they thought that SB 1070 interfered with federal law. They said it was preempted by federal law. Uh, the preemption idea means conflict. It's a principle that the Supreme Court has articulated that state laws cannot conflict with federal law in various ways. And if they do, they're invalid, they're void. So why do these various provisions of SB 1070 interfere with federal law? Well, we begin with the point that regulation of immigration is a federal power. Why is it a federal power? Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4 grants to Congress the power to create a uniform rule of naturalization. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations. And the Supreme Court has held that regulation of immigration is an exclusive federal power. But this is not to say that the states can't do anything at all with regard to non-citizens. In 1976, in Decanus versus Bica, the Supreme Court held that California could prohibit the employment of undocumented non-citizens because it was consistent with federal law, which also prohibited their employment. Uh, and it was designed to achieve permissible goals in the state, protection of the right to work of people who were lawfully in California. So decanus means that in some ways, states can do things that have the purpose or effect of making the United States less attractive to undocumented workers. Because by prohibiting their employment, obviously, uh, at least indirectly, it makes it less likely that undocumented people are going to come to the United States. So where's the line? It's clear from the cases that states have more authority to regulate undocumented people than they do documented non-citizens. States have more authority to regulate specific, particular kinds of misconduct by non-citizens uh, uh, than they have to regulate immigration itself. 
That is, the decision to allow uh, a non-citizen to come to the United States or make them leave. No one questions, for example, that a state could uh, arrest someone for murder, even if the victim or the suspect was not a citizen. No one questions that a state could arrest someone for kidnapping, for example, uh, even if the victim was brought across the border from Canada uh, into North Dakota. But it's also clear that states cannot directly regulate immigration by granting visas to people who want to come to the United States or by issuing deportation orders requiring people who are in, in the United States to leave. And that's true even if the states directly and precisely follow federal standards. So even if they're doing what the United States, what United States law requires, they can't, states can't directly regulate the immigration process. So with those principles in mind, I, along with most other commentators, uh, believed that almost all of SB 1070 was preempted. Almost all of SB 1070 was invalid because it conflicted with federal law. And so the United States Supreme Court held in 2012. The core reason for this is that there is something wrong with states helping the federal government enforce its own law. And what it is, is this. The Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the basic law that governs who can come into the United States on what terms and, uh, and what kind of conduct that they might engage in makes them leave, uh, uh, has a range of things that can happen to somebody who's in the United States without documentation. So if we take somebody who's here, has no claim to be in the United States lawfully, the departments of state, justice, and homeland security, who are responsible under the Immigration and Nationality Act for dealing uh, with immigrants, has a range, they have a range of choices. They go from criminal prosecution, in some cases, uh, deportation, requirement of voluntary departure, civil money penalty on the one side. So bad things can happen to somebody, in the, uh, an undocumented non-citizen who's found in the United States. But there's also a range of good things that can happen. They can be granted asylum. Their, uh, their removal can be suspended. They can be granted deferred action by the government, uh, which allows them to stay in the United States. And that can uh, be accompanied by work authorization. And this is the relief that was granted to the DREAM Act uh, children who were brought to the United States uh, as minors by President Obama uh, before the last election. So, so there's, there's bitter and there's sweet, a range of things that the statute provides for. How do the states fit into this? Well, under SB 1070, Arizona could not do most of those things. It could not order deportation. It could not grant asylum. It can only do one thing, and that's prosecute uh, and put that person in an Arizona jail. So the Immigration and Nationality Act contemplates a range of responses to the presence of undocumented people in the United States, and Arizona law authorizes only one. And there's just no reason to think that the 
that the particular thing that Arizona wants to do is the one that would be chosen by the agencies that have responsibility for this. So it can't be, it just makes no sense to me to think that Congress created uh, an Immigration and Nationality Act with a wide range of choices, a wide range of responses to the discovery of an undocumented non-citizen. And at the same time, it allowed states, it wanted to allow states to overrule those choices by the federal agencies and impose the particular one that they had in mind. Uh, uh, Basically, Arizona was saying that they had the right to overrule the judgment of the federal agencies. There's a deeper problem, though, in my view, than the fact that SB 1070 conflicted with the Immigration and Nationality Act. It's not simply a question that the state law conflicted with the federal law. It goes deeper than that. I think that the United States Constitution was designed to keep the states out of immigration, uh, to keep the states out of dealing with aliens because there's a certain, the, the Constitution reflects a certain lack of trust of states in this area. And the reason for this is that states who get involved in immigration often do so when they're angry about another country. And I think that that's true of the situation of Arizona and Mexico. One of the major Supreme Court cases in this area comes from 1876 in California, when California was trying to keep the Chinese from immigrating. This was not prohibited under federal law. Indeed, at that time, there was almost no federal immigration law. So it wasn't a preemption problem. It wasn't a problem that what California was doing conflicted with federal law somehow. It was simply that the the Supreme Court felt that immigration was not the business of the states. Uh, Here's what the Supreme Court said. Has the Constitution done so foolish a thing as to leave it in the power of the states to pass laws whose enforcement renders the general government liable to just reclamations which it must answer, while it does not prohibit to the states the acts for which it is held responsible? The Constitution of the United States is no such instrument. The passage of laws which concern the admission of citizens and subjects of foreign nations to our shores belongs to Congress and not to the states. The Supreme Court was worried that enforcement of immigration law by the states would lead to international problems. They said, a silly, an obstinate, or a wicked commissioner may bring disgrace upon the whole country, the enmity of a powerful nation, or the loss of an equally powerful friend. States cannot regulate immigration directly. They cannot set up border inspection stations and turn back people that they don't want, and they can't set up deportation tribunals in the interior and deport people from the United States. And because they can't do that directly, I don't think that they can do so indirectly. They can't, uh, for practical purposes, say that aliens can't come here by saying that if you do, we'll put you in jail. To me, that's the equivalent of direct regulation. For these reasons, the Supreme Court's ruling in Arizona versus United States was not a surprise to many of the people familiar with the court's earlier jurisprudence in the area. 
while the court has a conservative majority now, the key was that Arizona and the other states supporting SB 1070 were not taking a traditional conservative position where they were arguing that the, the state or the government should prevail against a claim of individual rights of a private person. Instead, what they were saying is that the rights of a state should prevail against the foreign policy and national security powers of the United States as a whole. Uh, that's a big argument. That's a lot to ask. And I was not surprised that conservative justices like Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy were uh, unimpressed with the argument. Defenders of SB 1070, critics of the majority decision in Arizona versus United States, call this argument spurious for the following reasons. It would be one thing, they say, for the federal government to have the right to enforce immigration law if it were enforcing immigration law. But it's not doing so, they claim, and therefore they argue that the states have regained the right that they had before union to enforce immigration law. As Justice Scalia put it in Arizona versus United States, are the sovereign states at the mercy of the federal government's refusal to enforce the nation's immigration law? A good way of answering that question, Justice Scalia said, is to ask, would the states conceivably have entered into the union if the Constitution itself contained the court's holding? So invalidating SB 1070 is a reason, evidently, that we should not have a United States anymore. Uh, two points on this. The first is that Justice Scalia's dissent gives the lie to the idea that, this, that Arizona was just trying to help enforce federal policy. Quite obviously, it, it wanted to have a different policy. The whole point is that it objected to federal policy and wanted to go its own way. The second point is, that's important here, is the suggestion that there's something wrong with not enforcing the law. In the case of immigration enforcement, there are more federal law enforcement officers devoted to immigration enforcement than there are to any other aspect of federal criminal law. There are more criminal prosecutions in federal court uh, uh, for immigration violations than there are for any other area of, uh, of federal criminal law enforcement, including drugs. In terms of civil deportation, President Obama has had more deportations than President Bush had. President Bush, in turn, had more than Clinton. President Clinton had more than Bush. So immigration enforcement, civil and criminal, is now numerically and quantitatively clearly the number one most important federal law enforcement priority. No question about that. But let's assume for purposes of discussion that it should be yeah, number one, but a higher number one than it is. Uh, what's wrong with not enforcing the law? Louis Schwartz, the University of Pennsylvania professor who wrote the Model Penal Code with Herbert Wexler, wrote, the paradoxical fact is that arrest, conviction, and punishment of, any, of every criminal would be a catastrophe. Hardly any one of us would escape, for we all have, at one time or another, committed acts that the law regards as serious offenses. 90 million adult Americans have committed drug offenses, for example. Would it be better if all of them were uh, charged, convicted, and imprisoned? My answer is that it's naive 
to say that because there has been a violation of law, therefore there must be an arrest and prosecution. This is just not how the law works. SB 1070 itself shows this. I told you, uh, remember, that there was a provision that for a lawsuit by any lawful resident of Arizona if a, an agency failed to enforce the law to the fullest. You wouldn't need that if there was any expectation that, of course, every law on the books is going to be enforced to the fullest. Of course, every agency has an obligation to enforce the law all the way. SB 1070 itself implicitly recognizes the reality that there are a lot of laws on the books. And the job of law enforcement agencies is to look at them and figure out which ones they're going to enforce and to what degree uh, for the benefit of the people of the jurisdiction. Obviously, serious crimes like rape, robbery, and murder, there's going to be a goal of full enforcement. With other crimes, not so. Congress and the states simply do not tax and spend enough money to have any realistic expectation that we're going to have uh, anything like full law enforcement. It's simply, it's simply impossible. And it's also undesirable, I think. It's unobjectionable that people who drive two miles an hour over the speed limit get away with it. Uh, and why is that? Because traffic laws are designed to achieve safe streets. They're not uh, designed to be enforced and, and, uh, and carried out for their own sake. And I, I think the same is true of immigration law. Should undocumented immigration be a higher criminal priority? Well, for one thing, Congress has made the basic offense of unlawful entry into the United States a petty offense. The lowest level of crime equivalent to a traffic offense or having a campfire in a national park without a permit. It's a trivial offense. The, the other thing is that historically our immigration policy has been an amnesty-driven policy. We've always let people go, even if they were deportable. We've, we've had broad policies over the years uh, that said, if you're here unlawfully, if you don't have legal status, well, we might let you stay anyway if you're the type of person that we want here. Why? Because the immigration selection regime has always been a regulatory regime that's designed to achieve a particular end. And the end is good immigrants, good citizens, good people who live here in the United States. Uh, it's been, in that respect, like the traffic laws. It has not been a, a law like the laws dealing with rape, robbery, and murder that are designed to stamp out a form of conduct. And therefore, when prosecution or deportation helps achieve the regulatory goal, we do it. But when it doesn't, uh, at least historically, we don't. Um, so traditionally, then, there's been no general rule that because a person is here without lawful authority, they have to be deported. The law must be obeyed. The rule of law requires that they be deported. 
uh, it, it's been to the contrary. And, and I must say that that's particularly true uh, uh, during the period when the immigrant stream was primarily white. Between 1921 and 1965, when the substantive immigration laws were designed to uh, admit a primarily white population, there was a great deal of flexibility, mercy, and, uh, and availability of amnesty. After the Immigration and Nationality Amendments uh, Act Amendments of 1965, the trend has been the other way, to a more rigid, uh, less discretionary system where those who violate the law uh, are going to be deported with a lot less opportunity for mercy and discretion. As I see it, uh, immigration has moved from a program many Americans were sentimental about, something they regarded as a building block of the nation, like the military or motherhood, to an economic program that brings certain benefits to the United States, but it's not something to which uh, it seems the same strong emotional connection that existed in past years is still present. So what happens next? The rest of Professor Kobach's portfolio of innovations, uh, such as ordinances prohibiting renting to undocumented people, are almost certain to go down. Uh, there, there are a number of cases pending around the country and the rationale of Arizona versus United States suggests that most of them are invalid. Uh, perhaps the Supreme Court will review the, the constitutionality of the state statutes prohibiting transporting, concealing, harboring, or shielding undocumented immigrants. Uh, my guess is that it will come out the same way. However, the, there was one provision that, uh, of SB 1070 that survived that the Supreme Court said, at least at this time, was constitutional. And that was the provision that required the investigation of suspected undocumented non-citizens when the police stopped, detained, or arrested somebody. Since the Supreme Court has said that that's basically constitutional in principle, we can expect to see more of those around the country. There's also going to be a political aftermath this is not the first time that state laws have been invalidated by the Supreme Court. They were major episodes in 1876 involving the Chinese, in 1915 involving Southern and Eastern Europeans, in 1995 involving Mexican immigrants in California. The cycle has been that first there's a genuine political controversy involving immigrants in the United States. The second stage is that the state passes a law to deal with those immigrants. Then uh, the law is challenged in federal court, and as I said, for the most part, the courts strike those laws down. But a Supreme Court ruling or a, another federal court ruling that says that a state law is unconstitutional doesn't eliminate the underlying social, legal, political issues that led to the law in the first place. There's still controversy, there's still anxiety, there's still concern, but at this point it has only one place to go, and that's Congress. And in 1876, 1915, 1995, uh, 
uh, and in other similar episodes, Congress has responded. And typically, it's responded in ways that are bad for the immigrants. It's either expressly authorized the things, uh, it's expressly authorized states to do the things that they were trying to do, or it's taken on those responsibilities itself by doing things like passing the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, uh, There's every reason to think that the pattern is going to repeat itself this time. The concern is still there about the undocumented population in Arizona and the other states. Uh, And I think it's also true that the Supreme Court case and the political agitation that led to it uh, has generated a political response, as it did in past decades. I do think, though, that the nature of the response this time may be different. Instead of driving the immigrants out, Congress may be inspired to find some way to regularize their status. In principle, I think this is a good solution. If the problem was that these people, undocumented people, were here in violation of the law, that problem can be completely and fully solved by Congress waving a magic wand and determining that they're legal in the United States. So that's what I have to say. Uh, Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.